Good morning, everybody. Good morning. Welcome to Banker Christian Fellowship Church on this the 28th of May, 2023. Uh, welcome if you're a um, welcome if you're a regular, and whether you're a visitor, whether you're here in church with us, or whether you're listening online. A very warm welcome to you. I just want to say it's fantastic to gather together, isn't it? Just to be able to meet and worship God here this morning. And we do that through singing hymns, through praying together, through reading the scriptures, and we have, fortunately this morning, Duncan will be preaching on a passage from Exodus 7 uh, on the theme of God's great acts of judgment. Good morning, church. The first reading today will be taken from the book of Exodus, chapter 7 verses 1 to 25. Give you some time to turn to that good book. Exodus chapter 7, verses 1 to 25. And the Lord said to Moses, See, I have made you like God to Pharaoh, and your brother Aaron shall be your prophet. You shall speak all that I command you, and your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh to let the people of Israel go out of his hand. But I will harden Pharaoh's heart, and though I multiply my signs and wonders in the land of Egypt, Pharaoh will not listen to you. Then I will lay my hand on Egypt and bring my hosts, my people, the children of Israel, out of the land of Egypt by great acts of judgment. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand against Egypt and bring out the people of Israel from among them. Moses and Aaron did so. They did just as the Lord commanded them. Now Moses was 80 years old and Aaron 83 years old when they spoke to Pharaoh. Then the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, when Pharaoh says to you, prove yourselves by walking a miracle, then you shall say to Aaron, take your staff and cast it down before Pharaoh that it may become a serpent. So Moses and Aaron went to Pharaoh and did just as the Lord commanded. Aaron cast down his staff before Pharaoh and his servants, and it became a serpent. Then Pharaoh summoned the wise men and the sorcerers, and they, the magicians of Egypt, also did the same by their secret arts. For each man cast down his staff, and they became serpents. But Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. Still, Pharaoh's heart was hardened, and he would not listen to them, as the Lord had said. Then the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hardened. He refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, as he is going out to the water. Stand on the bank of the Nile to meet him, and take your hand and take in your hand the staff that turned into a serpent. And you shall say to him, 
The Lord, the God of the Hebrews, sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But so far you have not obeyed. Thus said the Lord, By this you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, with the staff that is in my hand, I will strike the water that is in the Nile, and it shall turn into blood. The fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary of drinking water from the Nile. And the Lord said to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your staff and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over their rivers, their canals, and their ponds, and all their pools of water, so that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, even in the vessels of wood and in the vessels of stone. Moses and Aaron did as the Lord commanded. In the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants, he lifted up the staff and struck the water in the Nile, and all the water in the Nile turned into blood. And the fish in the Nile died, and the Nile stank, so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. There was blood throughout all the land of Egypt, but the magicians of Egypt did the same by their secret arts. So Pharaoh's hearts remained hardened, and he would not listen to them. And the Lord had said, Pharaoh turned and went into his house, and he did not take even this to heart. And all the Egyptians dug along the Nile for water to drink, for they could not drink the water of the Nile. Seven full days passed after the Lord had struck the Nile. God bless this reading for us in Jesus' name. Thank you, and uh, let me add to Adrian's welcome. It's lovely to have you with us. If we haven't met before, my name is Duncan, and I serve as pastor here and as one of the elders, and it's my joy to welcome you here. And you will find it helpful to have Exodus chapter 7 in front of you. If you received a copy of the diary on the way in, there is a printed copy there um, as we come to uh, these dramatic and increasingly exciting as you read through these chapters in Exodus story of God's care for his people. And I, I wonder, when it, when it comes to introducing yourself to someone for the first time, what is it that you most want them to know about you? I mean, in general, you want them to notice the things that are most impressive, right? I mean, of course, we all have bad habits. We all have our irritating little ways. But on first meet, we don't want those things to stand out. We don't want those to be the things that people will remember us by. We have other qualities. Well, I wonder if you were given the job of introducing God to someone where would you start with him? Are there certain qualities that God has 
that you would want to kind of hide away in the recesses somewhere and hope that they don't find out about those until much, much later, because that's not what we want you to think about God. Perhaps we would stick on the safe ground, wouldn't we, of speaking about God's love and God's goodness and God's creativity and God's power. All things that are true about God, of course. But what we have in Exodus chapter 7, and in fact in the whole of the book of Exodus, is the story of how God makes himself known. And we've already seen something of that. And for example, earlier in Exodus, Moses met God at the burning bush, and God made himself known to Moses by revealing his name. I am who I am. God simply is. And because God simply is what he is, we actually don't get to parcel off little bits of God and hide them away. All of what God is is all of what God is and it's what he always will be. Last week, if you were with us, we saw that God spoke about how he had heard and he had seen the trouble that his people were in, how they were enslaved in Egypt, and he had showed that that part of him being the Lord, or or the, the Hebrew name that he revealed is the name Yahweh. Part of him being Yahweh is that he is a God who delivers his people. And the story resumes in chapter 7 here. Um, You may have noticed we've missed out some verses. Um, There's been a break at the end of chapter 6 to kind of verify the ancestry of Moses and Aaron. But now here, God speaks to Moses, and he describes not what he's going to do in relation to his people Israel so much, as what he's going to do in relation to Pharaoh and Egypt. So look at verse 5. The Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. There's his great purpose. He's going to make himself known. And how is he going to do that? Well, God is introducing himself to the Egyptians, and he's going to do that, verse 4, by great acts of judgment. By great acts of judgment. That's how he is going to be known to Pharaoh and the Egyptians. You see, chapter 7 of Exodus is where the ten plagues begin to fall on Egypt. And over the next couple of messages in this book, we're going to see that far from these being just uh, some vindictive loss of temper by God, He's just kind of had enough with them and He's just going to make them feel bad, it is actually God's purpose to deliver His people, yes, but it is to make himself known, known to the world through what he does here. You see, God is no more on display when we're talking about what we think of as his warm attributes than he is here. He's on display here in God's great acts of judgment. And so, anytime we read a portion of the Bible, a key question to ask when we're reading it is, what does this teach me about God? That's what we must ask of this passage, especially if God is saying, I'm going to make myself known. Well, okay, what do we learn about God in these verses? 
And it is an, is an inescapable part of what it means for God to be God is that, first of all, He has dominion over all things. He has dominion over all things. And this is on display in multiple ways in our chapter today. First of all, God has dominion over the natural world. Um, as human beings, it is important to learn our limitations. Uh, yes, you do have them. We are bound by the laws of physics, of chemistry, of biology all the time. There's not a moment in your existence where you cease to be bound by these things. We cannot ever have a never-ending supply of energy. We can't have that personally. Uh, we, we cannot go long without sleep even. We cannot create life from non-living things. These are just simple laws of the world all around us by which we are bound and limited. But God is not bound by such things. In fact, it's impossible for Him to be bound by such things because He is the creator of all of these laws that are at work in our universe. And so, God can command Aaron to throw down his staff before Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, and God can turn it from wood into a serpent. And in fact, even that word there, serpent, could be crocodile even. God's able to do that. And while some sort of similar-looking thing was performed by Pharaoh's magicians, we read Aaron's staff swallowed up their staffs. There really is no limit to what God can do. The difference between the physical properties of wooden staffs and slithering reptiles is nothing to the God who has dominion over the natural world. Indeed, it is nothing to God to transform water into blood. It's more than just that, of course, I mean, just think about it. The River Nile is the main source of water for the Egyptians. In so many ways, the River Nile represents life for them. It is a source of life. And in this dramatic strike against Egypt, God turns the life-giving waters into a place of death. You see that particularly mentioned in verse 21. And the fish in the Nile died and the Nile stank so that the Egyptians could not drink water from the Nile. It leaves the people of Egypt digging in the ground, trying to find some other sources of water. Now, we're not told exactly why God struck the River Nile in this way, but there is an ominous picture, isn't it? an image that has been used many times through history since, this picture of a river flowing with blood. It's an ominous thing, and it's surely a flavor, a warning, an omen, if you like, of what is to come for Egypt. It's a picture of death. And what's going to follow in chapters 8, 9, and 10 are a further eight strikes against Egypt, a plague of frogs, a plague of gnats, of flies, the death of their livestock, a plague of boils, of hailstones, of locusts, and of darkness. 
There is no doubt that by the end of this run of plagues that you would conclude that Yahweh, the Lord, the God of the Hebrews, has dominion over the natural world. The prophet Jeremiah would say, Ah, Lord God, it is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. And not surprisingly then, if God has this kind of dominion, this kind of power, then we see here in Exodus 7 that God has dominion over the future. Because that's really the tone of the whole passage here, particularly in the way that it's written. We spend a lot of time as we read these verses listening to God, speaking to Moses, and telling him what to do, and telling him what will happen. A lot of it's written in that tense of God spoke and said, this is what's going to happen. And so, you look at the language of verse 2, for example. God says, you shall speak. Your brother Aaron shall tell Pharaoh, but I will harden Pharaoh's heart. Pharaoh will not listen. Then I will lay my hand, and on it goes. The same sort of thing happens in verses 14 to 19. If you look at verse 18 in particular, the fish in the Nile shall die, and the Nile will stink, and the Egyptians will grow weary. This is God speaking. But it's summed up so well for us twice in this chapter. In verse 13 and in verse 23, we're told things played out just as the Lord had said just as the Lord had said. And as you read through for most of these these great acts of judgment, these plagues that fall, Pharaoh is specifically warned in advance about the plague that will come upon Egypt. You see, he is showing himself to Pharaoh and the Egyptians as the God who has dominion, power over the future. And I think when we read this, it should seem, therefore, a strange thing that Christians are regarded as a bunch of weaklings. I mean, of course we are. Um, You can take a moment to look around if you want to verify that. Um, But you see, we are here as Christians not to point people to ourselves but to the God who makes Himself known in these kinds of ways. These attributes of God are there to be a real assurance to you today. If you are a Christian, this is your God. When life seems to be heading off the rails, when the clouds gather overhead, this is still your God, your Father in heaven, your Savior. He has dominion over the natural world, and He has dominion over the future. Yes, even your future. He even has dominion over all of those things that frighten you about your future. The world is not out of control, and neither is your life. 
for your God holds it all. And for all those who believe in Jesus Christ, God is promising to take us to a definite destination. But there's another aspect of God's dominion on show here, and I I wonder if it stood out to you as these verses were read, because four times in chapter 7, we're told about Pharaoh's heart being hardened. Verse 3, verse 13, verse 14, verse 22. And perhaps most perplexing of all for us as we read it is we hear God say in verse 3, I will harden Pharaoh's heart. You see, we're finding here that the Lord's dominion, not just over the natural world, not just over the future, but the Lord's dominion extends even to the hearts of kings. Now, we we need to be clear on, on what God is saying here. Because there is something that that clouds our understanding, and that is that in our context, if we were to say that someone is hard-hearted, what would we mean by that? We would say that they were callous, uncaring, lacking in all compassion. And though that is a pretty good description of Pharaoh, it is not what is meant by his heart being hardened. It's more the idea of his heart, which is his his inner person, which really reflects his whole person, being strengthened, becoming more determined to do something. So, there there are examples in the Bible where that word hardened, that same word, is used in a positive way. And let me give an example from Psalm 31. Be strong or be strengthened, or you could say be hardened, and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. You see, it's speaking about strengthening your resolve. So, when we read of God saying, I will harden Pharaoh's heart, He is not saying that He's going to make something, He's not going to make Pharaoh into something that Pharaoh didn't want to be, The idea is that Pharaoh's heart would be strengthened to do what he's already determined to do. And you see that even though God says he is going to strengthen or harden Pharaoh's heart, it's actually not, as you keep reading, until plague number six that God is described as actively strengthening Pharaoh's heart. He is strengthened in his resolve, in our chapter at the moment anyway, by the actions of of his magicians. You see that in verses 12 and 13, because they're able to somewhat replicate what Aaron has done with the staff. Well, then Pharaoh's heart was hardened, because they're able to to copy this thing of turning water into blood, but notice they're not able to reverse what God has done. Nevertheless, we're told Pharaoh's heart remained hardened because of what he'd seen. And I want us to think about this for a moment because there's, there is, the Bible says there is nothing more important about you than your heart. It's the thing that you need to keep more than anything else. Keep your heart with all vigilance, for from it flows the springs of life, says Solomon in Proverbs. Human beings have been granted this wonderful gift, and it's the gift of free choice. And by that I mean that the choices we make in life 
They really are our choices. And I think deep down, we all believe that, don't we? We're not compelled to do them. We freely choose to do them. And even when someone puts a bit of pressure on us, we still freely choose to do the things that we do. And exactly the same applies to Pharaoh, the king of Egypt, here. He has determined in his heart what he will do. And he is strengthened in his resolve to do it. And here it is to disobey the command of God. You see, the free will that we have is, however, restricted by the kind of creatures that we are. Here's how Paul describes what life was like for someone before they became a Christian. He says, we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. Living in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. That's the ways in which we are restricted in how our free choice is demonstrated, because we choose the things that, well, simply that our hearts desire. Pharaoh's mind needs to be changed. And God does not force that in one colossal strike against him. Instead, God chooses to make himself known to Pharaoh. He's going to press Pharaoh to change direction, but to genuinely do so. And I don't know how often we think about this, but it really is only God's restraining grace that prevents us from falling into the full depth of sin that our hearts would pursue if the handbrake was taken off. And what we're seeing here is that actually when that restraint that God has in the world and on people's lives is lifted, as in Pharaoh's case here, as Pharaoh's heart is strengthened to be what Pharaoh is, then the depths of his rebellion against God are more and more on show. Even with God screaming in his ear, this man who is regarded as a God in Egypt, he shows himself to be the worst possible kind of God who would happily see his own people and his own nation ruined rather than bow before the Lord. And that is a mark of the human hearts. So often we would rather see our world burn than acknowledge the authority that God has over us. And what human beings need more than anything else is a new heart. Not some system for modifying our behavior, a new heart, something at the core that needs to be transformed, because without that, all that we can ever do is produce the fruit that comes from a sinful heart. And a sinful root produces a sinful fruit, however impressive that fruit might look at times. You see, the Bible tells us that the core of who we are is bent out of shape. And were it not for God's restraining grace, then who knows where we would all end up. And here we find Pharaoh's heart remains unbowed to God. In fact, go through all ten of these plagues right to the very end 
His heart remains stubbornly opposed to God. Pharaoh is set in contrast with Moses and Aaron here, who we're told repeatedly, even in this chapter, that they did just as the Lord commanded. You see that in verse 6, verse 10, verse 20. But the greatest contrast with Pharaoh is that of Jesus Christ himself. Because when we read the life of Jesus Christ, we read the life of one who lived a life of perfect obedience. His heart's desire was always to do the will of his Father. Even in the agony of anticipating what lay ahead for him, to be crucified, to be abandoned by God, he prayed that if it was possible, if there was some other way that this could pass from him. And then he says, yet, not my will, but your will be done. And the wonderful thing about Jesus' obedience to the Father is that it was so that sinners like us might have a changed heart. His obedience to death on the cross was a sacrifice for sins so that all who come to him believing find forgiveness. They find that his life of obedience becomes their life of obedience, and we have a right standing with God. We find that Jesus' resurrection is our resurrection, and we have eternal life. And all of this is applied to the one who believes by the Holy Spirit, who gives a new life, a new heart, with new desires, new capabilities to obey and to honor God. This is the only way to be freed from the self-destruction of a heart that is in rebellion against God. And only God can give it. Let me call on you today. This diagnosis of a heart that is against God and would rebel against God in, at every turn if it was given full liberty, it applies to every one of us here. And the call is simple, to come to Jesus, to turn from your sin, to turn from yourself, and to turn to Him and to say, Lord, I need this new birth, this new life, this new heart. And all who come to him in faith like that, he will give it. He will give it. This also leads us to a bit of a, a correction to how we often think. Um, I'm not seeking to wade into controversy. Um, imagine with me that um, the Lord blessed us uh, in these coming years with another apostolic era in the church. Um, and, and by that I mean a replication of much of what we see in the book of Acts. Let me put it that way. I mean, we've recently been studying the book of Acts, and the church, and especially the apostles, were marked out by the miraculous, weren't they? There's a time when we read that even Peter's shadow, when it fell on people who were sick, it brought healing we read that the Apostle Paul 
There were cloths and aprons that he'd used that when they t- people touched these garments that they were healed. There was even the occasional resurrection from the dead. And we read of that and we think, well, no wonder the church grew, right? If we had that going on right here, right now in this place, we would surely see a mass turning back to God. Well, not so fast. Because the recounting of how God struck Egypt with miraculous blow after miraculous blow is a warning to us, actually, that miracles are not as convincing as you think. Miracles are not as convincing as you think. I mean, Pharaoh sees a staff turned into a serpent. He sees the Nile turned to blood, and he sees his nation barraged with supernatural displays of God's judgment. And none of it, none of it changes his heart. None of it. Not even the loss of his eldest son is enough to bring about some noticeable, lasting change in Pharaoh. Now, of course, these miracles here in the book of Exodus, they have an important role as they, as they have done in the church. And people, even Egyptians who saw these miraculous happenings, some of them did believe in God and trusted Him. But it's important to be clear on where they fit. And I think this is an important contrast that we're supposed to get from these chapters. In chapter 4, Moses and Aaron visited the Israelites in Egypt to tell them for the first time of God's plan to deliver them. And this is from verse 30. It says, Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people, and the people believed. And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshipped. It's recounted there that they did the signs, which from what we had read earlier means they had turned the staff into a snake There had been the miraculous disease and recovery of Moses' hand, and it seems there had been a demonstration of turning water into blood, all of these three things. And the response was what? The people believed. Now, it wasn't the miracles themselves that did this. It's what they were combined with. All the words that the Lord had spoken, these things went together. There's no option to separate them. It was when they heard that the Lord had visited. These same miracles were done in the presence of Pharaoh. Certainly, the staff was turned into a serpent. He sees on a grand scale water being turned into blood, and his response was what? His heart was strengthened in his resistance to God, and he refused to obey. What is it that determines someone's response It is not how outwardly impressive the messenger is. It is not how convincing the miracle is even. But it is about the condition of the heart. The miracles of Christ and the miracles of the apostles after him were not ends in themselves. They were there to point people to the truth of the message that they spoke. Because It's the message. 
the living Word of God that saves and transforms and gives new life, brings someone from death to life. And so, above all things, we need to pray for changed hearts. Who knows? Maybe the Lord will bless us with miracles. I wouldn't discount it. But unless the Lord brings with that changed hearts to receive the Lord Jesus Christ, then it's all for naught. Let's seek the Lord to do the greatest miracle of all, to open a heart to receive Jesus Christ and to be born again. Well, let's draw things to a close here. When, when Pharaoh was first confronted with the command of the Lord back in chapter 5, he said, who is Yahweh? I do not know Yahweh. Well, God is making himself known. The God who has dominion over all things is making himself known. And he is making himself known as a God of judgment. He wants Pharaoh and anyone who will listen to know that it is a serious thing to rebel against the rule of God. God has determined to rescue his people from Egypt, and Pharaoh insists that they stay. And part of the message that comes here is that you do not, as a mere creature, get to wave your fist in the face of God. And yet, this episode in Egypt is a testimony that even in judgment, God is patient. You remember what I said at the start? We don't get to parcel off these little bits of God and, and take them away in isolation. God is patient, and God is a God of judgment, and God is a God of love and a God of grace, and all of these things hold together. Even in His judgment, God is patient. I mean, why else would God draw out His interaction with Pharaoh and Egypt? Why go through ten plagues? when he has the dominion to do it all without any. You see, the plagues will escalate in intensity, they'll escalate in harmfulness, but each one of them is a fresh opportunity to turn to the living God. You see, God takes judgment very seriously. And I can say that because he passed judgment on his own son when he died on the cross. And if you're here today and you're a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, that is amazing news. The Apostle Paul would say, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? You know, when you have that foundation for life, that foundation for your relationship with God to know that God gave his son for you, then what will he not give you? But for those who reject Jesus Christ, this is devastating stuff. It's devastating. Because this applies in reverse, doesn't it? I mean, if God didn't spare his own son, what makes you think he's going to spare you? But God is patient. I mean, we're still here, aren't we? We're hearing God's word, aren't we? 
We're hearing about how God wants to call sinners to come to Jesus Christ and to find forgiveness and new life. And so it's time to get right with God. Whoever you are here today, it's time to get right with God. Maybe for some who've made commitments, it's time to get serious with God. Because we're being brought face to face with just what kind of God. It's time for each one of us to be back to Jesus Christ. Seeking new life from Him. Seeking fresh grace from Him. Seeking a fresh vision of who He is. That we might worship Him and follow Him with all that He's given us. Let's take a moment to pray. Father, we want to thank you for the very fact of of you being a God who makes himself known to us. And of course, Lord, we, we are in some ways unsettled by what you've revealed to us in these chapters in Exodus. But we thank you, Father, that you don't simply reveal these things to unsettle us or to scare us, but Lord, that we might know you and that we might come to you and that we might come to you specifically through your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you are a God of judgment. And we thank you, Father, that for each one of us who belongs to Jesus, that need not terrify us for your judgment that we deserve has fallen upon him. And we thank you for the new life that is available to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would give us a deep reverence for who you are, give us a true sense of worship and a deep, deep appreciation of just how precious it is to know Jesus Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. Coffee's afterwards, if you'd like to stay. I'm sure if you've got any questions, Duncan will be here, happy to answer them. If you want to come and talk to me, that's fine too. But let me just finish with the words of, uh, from Jude. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Saviour, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Bless you all. Thank you.